Well, it's good to see you all again this evening. Uh, just before we get started, uh, just a few announcements. We will be meeting next Wednesday. <laughs> it is Halloween next Wednesday, but we will... Uh, Rick Smith wants to dress in uniforms, I guess we can, or in, in costumes, I should say. So, uh, <laughs> Rick, we'll all be waiting. <laughs> yeah. We will be meeting next week. We're going to look at, uh, it's also Reformation Day, so we can dress up as our favorite Reformation hero. So, we can get some uh, steaks, you know, burning out there and see who's ready to jump into the fire. <laughs> yeah. All right. One more announcement uh, uh, on a uh, personal or a uh, uh, more serious note. Jeff Secor. Where's Jeff? Jeff is right here. Jeff is starting uh, an FOF, Fundamentals of the Faith, study next Sunday at 4 o'clock. We had originally thought that the uh, FOF study could be at, um, at 6 o'clock in the evening during the time of the second service. It's best that we don't do it actually during the time of the second service. So if you are a new believer and would like to go through a systematic study of the fundamental teachings of the gospel, this Fundamentals of the Faith curriculum is excellent. It's designed for you. And so if you're interested in that, Jeff, again, put up your hand at the back there. There's Jeff. Uh, he will start at next Sunday evening, 4 o'clock. This, this coming Sunday evening, 4 o'clock, 4 p.m., from 4 to 6. And if you're married and you want to bring your spouse, you are welcome to do that as well, because Jeff's wife will be part of that as well. So keep that in mind. All right, well, tonight we are going to continue our study of the men around Paul and look at this man by the name of Silas, a man that is known for his stability of character. Silas, a pillar of stability. All of you should have a handout. If you don't have one, raise your hand and somebody will get you a handout. There should be some still on the back seats around there. I've got an extra one up here if somebody needs it. Okay, we've got some around on the, the side there. Just to give you an overview of what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about uh, four things about Silas tonight. First of all, we're going to look at him briefly as a distinguished leader. So we get into the life of this man by the name of Silas. We'll look at his distinction as a leader in the early church. Secondly, we're going to see also that he was known as a very gracious, encouraging prophet. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. As well, number three, our third focus, and we'll spend most of our time on this third characteristic. He was a courageous missionary. So we'll look at his life uh, as a missionary alongside the Apostle Paul. And then fourth, Silas as a faithful assistant, a distinguished leader a gracious prophet, a courageous missionary, and a faithful assistant. Before we get into those, though, just some basic facts about this man by the name of 
Silas. Some basic facts about his background. We actually know very little about his background. We've looked at other men like Barnabas and Mark and we know a little bit more of their background. Silas's background is really a big question. We just don't know very much about him and his, his, as far as his background is concerned. His name first appears in reference to the Jerusalem church, he appears on the scene, as we're going to see, at the end of the Jerusalem council, this big theological council meeting that happens in Jerusalem as a result of a very serious threat to the gospel. And his name appears as a delegate that is entrusted with the verdict of that Jerusalem council. So we see him first in Acts chapter 15. He's primarily known for his time alongside the Apostle Paul on Paul's second missionary journey. In fact, in the book of Acts, that's where we find him most, on that crucial uh, trip that Paul makes into Europe, into the, uh, the, the provinces of, of Macedonia and Achaia, and Silas is alongside him there, uh, Acts chapters 16, 17, and 18, But what's interesting to note in Luke's narrative in the book of Acts is that Silas, at the end of this second missionary journey, when Paul leaves Corinth and ends his second missionary journey, Paul leaves Silas in Corinth, and that's the last that we hear of Silas in the book of Acts. He's never mentioned by Luke again. He's mentioned by Paul a couple of times uh, in his letters, but Silas just really has his focus uh, of ministry, his, his descriptions of ministry associated with Paul on this second missionary journey, although there is a very interesting reference to Silas in one of Peter's letters, and we'll look at that in reference to 1 Peter 5 verse 12. He appears alongside the apostle Peter about 12 years after Paul left him in Corinth, he appears beside Peter in Rome, helping Peter write First Peter. We'll look at that. As well, just a note about the name, Silas. We know this name because he, that name appears most often. And it's always Silas in the book of Acts. When Luke the physician, Luke the historian is writing about Silas, he always uses the name Silas. But Silas's full Latin name was Silvanus. And so when Paul refers to Silas in his letters, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians, he refers to him as Silvanus. And when Peter refers to Silas, he refers to him as Silvanus. Silvanus was Silas's formal Roman name. Silas appears to be either a diminutive form of that, a shortened form, uh, Silas and Silvanus. You can see how that can be condensed from, Silas, from Silvanus to Silas. Or some have speculated that Silas is actually a Greek rendering of the Hebrew Saul. So some have said that, that, that Silvanus was his Roman name and perhaps the name that he would have received from his Jewish parents might have been Saul. And, and so the Greek rendering from, from Aramaic into, into Greek may have come up with Silas. We, we really just don't know that. But it's important to note that distinction though. When you're in the book of Acts, his name's Silas. When you're in Paul's letters 
or you're in Peter's letter, it's Silvanus, the formal name. One more thing about Silas that we do know about his background, he was a Roman citizen. We're going to see that in reference to his time in the city of Philippi when he's unjustly beaten. Uh, We're going to see that Silas, like the Apostle Paul, was a Roman citizen, which essentially afforded Silas very unique privileges, even as a Jew. He had very unique privileges in the Roman Empire, one who could not be unjustly punished, one who could not be unjustly put in prison, one who could not be subject to humiliating forms of punishment like being beaten with rods or whips. Silas was a Roman citizen. Now just also a brief note about the overlap of Silas's life with Paul's life. Sometimes we have this idea that the overlap was this long period. In reality, the overlap appears to be about three or four years between Silas and Paul. So if you look at this slide here, Silas comes onto the scene at the Jerusalem Council in AD 49. Then he is immediately with Paul in Antioch, in Syrian Antioch, right after the Jerusalem Council, when Paul says, let's go on the second missionary journey. And Paul selects Silas to go with him. And Silas is with him for about three years. And then Paul leaves him in Corinth. And then that's the end of their crisscrossing or their their paths crossing as far as we know from biblical history. So that's a little bit of the background between Silas and Paul, let's now look at the first characteristic that we can glean about this man's life. He was a distinguished leader. He was a distinguished leader. And this we can find in the first scene that Luke gives us in the book of Acts. It's the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. And we read these words that at the end of the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, verse 22 to 23 says this, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. Now the issue of the Jerusalem Council, the, the, the issue that that, that instigated that council was whether Gentiles, non-Jews, needed to become Jews in order to become true followers of Jesus Christ. That was what some had been teaching. And, and they had been teaching that in the, in the Gentile church up in Antioch, saying to the Gentiles who, were, who had claimed that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the, the Savior, And these Jewish representatives, who didn't have the authority of the Jerusalem church, went up there and said, no, you need to be circumcised for you to become a follower of Jesus. You essentially need to become a Jew first, and then a Christian. And we read in the early uh, verses of Acts chapter 15 that Paul and Barnabas react strenuously to that attack on the gospel, the teaching that man is not saved by becoming a Jew and then a Christian. Man is saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so the Jerusalem council is convened to discuss this issue and to deal with this problem. And the verdict of the council is very clear that that 
Jews and Gentiles, both are saved only on the basis of faith in the finished work of Jesus, the Messiah, and they are not saved according to works of the law, according to religious efforts, according to trying to, to, to gain merit before God by your religious activities. The, the Jerusalem Council was, was very clear on that. In fact, if you have some time, if you would look at Peter's words in Acts 15, Peter has some of the greatest words about this issue in Acts chapter 15 as Peter, beginning in verse uh, Verse 12, you have Paul and Barnabas speaking, and then you have uh, the words of, of Peter. Actually, sorry, before that, the words of Peter are found um, in, in, in that context there about how neither Jew nor Gentile are able to be saved by works of the law. So the result was that the council declared that Salvation was by faith in Jesus. End of story. Now they needed men from among them who could go and testify to this verdict in the church in Antioch. So they look for what is called a leading man or leading men from among the brethren. Men who could be trusted to represent the verdict of the Jerusalem council without deviation, without partiality, without misrepresentation. And as they look for these men, they find two of them. They find Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. And they are, these men are called leading men among the brethren. It's a very important designation. Uh, this word for leading has the idea to be in a supervisory capacity, to, to be a leader, to be a guide. And that Silas is recognized as one of these leading men indicates that there in the Jerusalem church, Silas was a leader of distinction. He was not just a, a regular kind of leader, an average kind of leader. Silas was one who stood out. And because he stood out as a leading man among the other brothers, he could be trusted with the verdict of the Jerusalem council to take its results and accurately explain it to the church in Antioch. So that's our first picture of Silas. He's, he appears on the scene not by any seeming effort on his own. Rather because of his faithfulness in ministry. His commitment to excellence in everything that he did. Set him apart as a man who could be trusted. With this very important verdict of the Jerusalem council. The second quality that we see of Silas. Is that he's a gracious prophet. And this is. Described for us in scene two of Silas's life in the book of Acts. Now the, the, the focus has shifted from what happened in, uh, in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem council in AD 49. To Silas's ministry of retelling the result of the Jerusalem council in Syrian Antioch. So it moves up north. And we read these words in Acts 15, verses 30 to 33. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch. Now, one thing to note about the geography, you always go up to Jerusalem. And you go down everywhere else. That's the Jerusalem-centric worldview of the Bible. And so even though 
Antioch was up north. We normally would say he went up to Antioch, but actually from the Jerusalem-centeredness of the scriptures, you, you go down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they, that is Silas and Judas, delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. So it is here now where we see the ministry of Silas in action. We just see him described as a distinguished leader in the Jerusalem church, a a Jewish believer who had distinguished himself by his commitment to excellence and being trustworthy and reliable. Now he's in action. He's sent as a delegate to Antioch. He's there. He's practicing his spiritual giftedness. He is preaching. He is prophesying. He is giving words of the Lord to the church. And these words are described this way. They are words of encouragement And they are words of strengthening. Now get this. Silas is a Jewish believer. And even at this time, there there were still some levels of discomfort between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. That's why the Jerusalem Council was started in the first place, because there were divisions that were, that were, uh, that were occurring, and the, the leadership had to constantly work to keep the church unified under the gospel. And here you have this Jewish leader, Silas, a believer in Jesus, comes to the Gentile church, and he feels at home. He sees the great work of God being done among these people, Gentiles who were formerly pagans being brought to follow Jesus Christ and they are embracing Jesus Christ and Silas as this Jewish prophet, this believer in the Messiah comes and devotes himself to encouragement which means to urge strongly. It's passionate appeal. That's what Silas was engaged in. It's the same basic root verb for encouragement that we get from the name Barnabas, son of encouragement, that same ministry. And Silas was also engaged in strengthening. The idea here is to cause someone to become stronger. To be an instrument in their strengthening. That's what Silas was engaged in. And so we can see that by his effort as a Jewish believer, to him, fellowship with Gentile believers was not a problem at all. He was at home and he invested himself in the lives of these Gentile, young Gentile believers. As one commentator said, Silas was a passionate preacher of the word who interpreted the meaning of the glad tidings of what God had done in Christ to the men of his generation. And we could add here both Jew and Gentile alike. He was not a man of partiality. That's the second, the second quality we learn about Silas. He was a gracious prophet. He was at home, both in the Jerusalem church and in the Gentile church in Antioch. Let's look at the third characteristic now, scene three in the book of Acts. And this scene it doesn't just focus on one city. It, it It focuses on Paul's entire second missionary journey, 
which begins around the year AD 50 and goes to the year AD 52. And in this scene, we see Silas as a courageous missionary. A courageous missionary. One who is willing to go into lands where he had never been before and to lay down his life in order to bring the gospel to those who had never heard of the saving message of Jesus Christ. Now, how this comes about is very fascinating. We know a little bit of this story already because it is connected to Barnabas and to Mark. So in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 40, we read these words. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Now the question is, why did Paul choose Silas? Remember, Paul had already spent several years in the church in Antioch and there were other prophets there. There were other leaders, other pastors in that church in Antioch. You can read of some of their names in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. So there are other candidates to replace Barnabas. Why does Paul decide to take this newcomer? It's an interesting question. But obviously, we can make several assumptions here. First, Silas must have distinguished himself also as an exceptional leader, not just in Jerusalem, but also there in, in, uh, in Antioch. He must have established himself there in his ministry of the word as this gracious prophet, strengthening, exhorting, encouraging. One who is not partial. He was not one who preferred certain ethnicities and peoples above others. He was committed to bringing the gospel to all people without partiality. He was committed to the gospel of grace. And so Paul must have observed this in those, those months or those weeks after the Jerusalem council as Silas was there in Antioch preaching and teaching to the members of that church. Also, Silas, as a representative of the Jerusalem church, was an important addition to the team because this represented the unity of the church at the highest levels. Here you have Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, taking with him one of the most distinguished representatives of the Jerusalem church. Nothing could testify to the, to the unity of the church at, uh, better than that. That there were not two separate churches, one Jewish church, one Gentile church. No, the ministers uh, were in fellowship with one another, Silas and Paul. Thirdly, Silas was a Jew, meaning he, like Paul, could enter the synagogues wherever they went. They would still go and preach to the Jews. That would be their starting point for evangelism whenever they'd enter a city. Because there the Jews knew the scriptures. And Paul could go there first and meet with the Gentiles who had come to associate with Judaism. Go there first with the gospel, and tell them first that Jesus is the fulfillment of these messianic promises, and then build the ministry out to the Gentiles from that. And Silas, like Paul, could go into those synagogues and preach. And fourthly, Silas was a Roman citizen. 
Meaning he, like Paul, enjoyed legal protections against fanatical opponents. At least the protections were legal, not always necessarily enforced. But in law, Silas was to be protected by the Romans because of his status. And Paul recognized that as important. He recognized the pagan world of the day and realized that having another Roman citizen with him would mean that they'd have greater freedoms to preach Christ. Just a side note here. It's interesting to note Paul's ability to build a team. And if you're a leader and you're following the example of Paul, here's one of the key components of this. You need to know how to build a good team. And as one scholar says, one of the notable things about Paul is his skill in the choice of his co-workers. He loved them and he gloried in them. In return, they showed him a firm spirit of loyalty and devotion. Paul gathered around him a wonderful group of friends and workers in the gospel. And this second missionary journey is, is a prime example of that as he brings alongside himself this wonderful co-laborer, Silas. As we're going to look at next week, he's going to add to that team, Timothy. And then as we're going to look at the week after that, he's going to add to this team, this second missionary journey, Luke. Paul is a team builder. Now, according to the geography of Paul's second missionary journey, this second missionary journey was Paul's greatest in terms of its extent, in terms of the miles traveled and the, the regions covered. Paul takes the gospel all the way from Antioch. You can see it highlighted there. Syrian Antioch. He takes it all the way from there, beginning in AD 50, Acts chapter 15, verse 40, all the way uh, to Corinth. That's going to be really the last major emphasis of his missionary journey. So he goes through Galatia, up into Macedonia, down into Achaia, and into Corinth. And he sets up a lengthy ministry there in Corinth before returning back to Jerusalem. Now this, this ministry puts Silas then if we can use this kind of language, put Silas then as, uh, then as on the pedestal of one of the great missionaries of church history. Silas is with Paul, beside Paul, on this very ambitious ministry effort. Now, one stage of this journey I want to point to in our study tonight, especially as it relates to Silas, is what happened in the city of Philippi. You can see it on the map there. Paul and Silas get to Philippi. It's, the ministry is recorded for us in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 40. And that, that chapter of their time on this missionary journey is a fascinating look into the character of both Paul and Silas. Now, a brief word about Philippi. Philippi was a very important city was located about nine miles inland of the port city of Neapolis. And if you've ever been to, to uh, modern-day Greece, the, the, the city of Neapolis is called Kavala. And if you'd go nine miles inland from the Aegean Sea, you'd get to this ancient city of Philippi. It's just ruins today. In 27 BC, this city was designated uh, as a Roman colony, which gave this city 
very unique privileges. If you were a citizen of Philippi, you were considered to be also a citizen automatically of Rome. And so those who were part of Philippi uh, treated themselves like Romans. They called themselves Romans because of this high status. Also, a very important east-west highway called the Via Ignatia traveled all the way from the Black Sea across to the Adriatic Sea. So if you, were, uh, if, if you were at the Black Sea and you wanted to go to Rome, you had to go, if you're going by foot on this, this highway, you had to go through Philippi to the Adriatic Sea, get on a boat, hop across the Adriatic Sea and go up to Rome. And this city was the location for Paul's first preaching of the gospel in Europe on the second missionary journey. Now, how does this come about? Well, we could read of how Paul and Silas first ministered to a group of Jewish Ladies, There's no synagogue in Philippi. There appears to be no significant number of Jews in Philippi. So there is no synagogue. So the Jews, if they didn't have a synagogue, would meet on the Sabbath, usually by a stream of water. And so Paul and Silas first go there and preach to the Jews there. And we read of Lydia, a seller of purple fabric, who becomes the first convert of their ministry in Europe, a woman. But what's really fascinating is what happens next. As Paul and Barnabas seek to reach the city with the gospel, they're preaching the gospel, and we read of this demon-possessed girl. Literally, she has a pythonic spirit. In those days, the, uh, the, the, the fortune tellers, those who supposedly predicted the future, were said to be possessed by the spirit of Python, this female dragon who is associated with oracles and prophecies. And there is this lady, this slave girl, who is a fortune teller and following Paul and Silas around, saying that these are slaves of the Most High God. Now that appears to be a good reference. These are slaves of the Most High God. Isn't that a true statement? It isn't. Because this slave girl possessed by this demon is not interested in supporting the ministry of Silas and Paul. She's interested in sabotaging it. And there in the Philippian context, that reference to the most high God is a reference to Zeus. The highest God, the most high God in the Greek pantheon. So this is what's happening. Paul and Silas are preaching and this This demon-possessed girl is going around saying, these are slaves of the Most High God. These are slaves of Zeus. So Paul casts out the demon. Well, with the flight of the demon goes the flight of the money of the slave girl's owners. They had been making a fortune off of her fortune-telling. and They were upset. So in Acts chapter 16, we read these words, but when the Masters, her masters, saw that their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Now, first important observation. 
Paul and Silas, as Roman citizens, should never have been beaten by rods or stripped like this. Now, we don't know why this happened. Perhaps Paul and Silas weren't able even to respond. Perhaps the magistrates didn't even listen to them. They just assumed they were just Jews, and they proceeded to beat them. Second observation, this was no light thing. Let me read a little bit about the the magistrates or the police officers uh, in this day who would carry out the, the, the punishment that was prescribed by chief magistrates. So the, there'd be some kind of a council. The magistrates, the city officials would say they're to be beaten. And there was a special kind of enforcer that would do this work. And these were called the lictors. Now re- listen to what the punishment of a lictor would mean for a, a criminal or anyone who had been considered guilty. Lictors carried a bundle of rods called a fascus which consisted of a number of slender birch sticks, the same length that were bound together with a red ribbon to form a cylinder. So they'd carry the cylinder. Some forms of the fascus had an axe head attached to the rod. This is actually very famous in in Roman history. And that axe head symbolized that the lictor had the authority both to discipline and to execute. At the order of the magistrates, the lictors drew a single birch rod from the bundle and used it to whip the offenders. This instrument of torture enabled the lictor to pound the offender to a pulp without the risk of damaging internal organs or unintentionally killing him. If a rod broke, the lictor had plenty more in his bundle. Roman law did not impose a limit on the number of the blows that the lictor could inflict. This slender birch stick was ideal to inflict maximum pain to make it as bloody as possible without breaking bones or damaging internal organs. It was an exceedingly excruciating punishment. And this is what happened to Silas and to Paul. Then we read in Acts chapter 16 verses 23 to 24 that when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. If you go to Philippi today, there's, a, there's this building. You can see it. I've got it on the screen here where uh, the, the jail was. Now understand, in those days, they wouldn't have big jails because they didn't keep prisoners for very long. Either the purpose was to punish them for a short period of time and let them go, or it was to hold them until their death, and there wasn't a long period before capital punishment would be inflicted. So just a small building. But it was usually crammed. And here we also can see a picture of how that jail cell would have looked. This is what they think the the cell was where Silas and Paul were held. Prison cells like this one in Philippi were dark, cold, and cramped. The cells were typically overcrowded with other prisoners, both male and female, who had been beaten and were succumbing to illness or their wounds. There there was no clean clothing, no bedding, no clean water. There were no proper toilets, and so the stench of the human waste would be absolutely sickening. Regarding stocks, one commentator says this, the stocks were both a means of restraint and an instrument of torture. The stocks were beams of wood with multiple holes bored in them, 
These allowed the prisoner's legs to be stretched apart as widely as possible and then fastened in the stocks. This position became excruciatingly painful over time. So it's not just their backs that were exposed and bleeding. It was also the pain inflicted on their legs as they were fastened in the stocks. It is known that prisoners who are subjected to this kind of punishment often long for a speedy death. Now what follows next is utterly astonishing. In a place where you would typically expect to hear the worst cursing in the world and some of the most bizarre subhuman shrieks of pain, you hear a very different noise coming from these two prisoners. Acts chapter 16 verse 25 says this, but about midnight... This is midnight, which means that probably what had happened happened hours earlier. This, the trial wouldn't have been at night. Usually the trials, uh, such as what happened in Philippi, would have been earlier on in the day. So it's possible that Paul and Silas had been up in this prison, or at least had experienced their wounds from the whipping, from the beating, 12 hours previous to this. They're in pain. But Luke writes, but about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. If any of you are familiar with what goes on in a jail even today, the sound of singing praise to God is what you don't expect. It was a place of cursing, screaming, yelling, but these men were singing hymns and, and these, these the, the, the verbs here that are used, they were praying and were singing hymns, suggest that this had been going on for quite some time. And the word for hymns that is used here refers to those musical numbers, those melodies which proclaim the virtues and the deeds of God. So think of this. These are men who are bleeding And they're being held in these stocks in excruciating pain. No clean water. A stench that was unbearable. No sleep. Nothing clean at all in that place. Cold and dark. Crowded. And they are singing the virtues and the great works of God. And these were not silent prayers. These were not imprecatory prayers prayers. These were prayers and songs that elicited the quietness and attention of the others, probably in that same cell. And I want to say this as we wrap this up, consider the impact of Silas's life here. Let me give you an important life principle. A severe trial reveals a man's true character. If you want to know what you're really made of, subject yourself to this kind of punishment that Silas and Paul endured. And note this too, Silas and Paul should never have endured this. This was unjust. This kind of trial, this kind of suffering will reveal what is in a man. And it revealed what was in 
Paul and Silas. They prayed and they sang hymns to God. I came across this article just this week by Paul David Tripp called How Suffering Reveals Your True Self. He said this, Suffering draws out the true thoughts, attitudes, assumptions, and desires of your heart. Each of us brings to our suffering things that shape the way that we suffer. We all suffer, but we don't suffer the same way because our suffering is shaped by what we carry into the difficulties that come our way. End quote. How we prepare ourselves for suffering will impact the way in which we suffer. And in the midst of that great suffering, our true character will be exposed. Paul and Silas sang hymns. One commentator said this, One cannot think of Paul in the Philippian jail without seeing Silas with him, both happy in the stocks. In spite of bruised bodies and unknown tarot's on the morrow, they were happy when they were with Jesus. And the challenge of, of Silas's life as exemplified in this response to suffering is the, the, the challenge is to us. What are we doing in our lives right now to, to, to prepare ourselves for this kind of response in the midst of suffering? How, how do you suffer? Think back to the last time you endured a trial, some unjust treatment. What was your response? Don't just think that Without preparation, you'll be able to stand in the midst of that trial and sing hymns and prayers to God. No, we can say this, that it was all of that which preceded that beating there in Philippi that prepared, Saul, uh, that prepared Silas and Paul for this kind of response. So what are you doing today to prepare yourselves? What are you taking into the next trial? And will you be able, in the midst of great pain and unjust treatment, you'll be able to sing of God's virtues and his great works. Well, you can continue to read on there in Acts chapter 16, I won't. But what happened was, you probably are familiar with the story, as they sing, God responds with an earthquake. All the stocks come loose, all the doors come open, the prisoners are free to go, and the warden of the prison if he let any prisoner go, would be, would be punished with the severest of punishments. His life would be taken. So he already knows that he draws his sword and he's ready to take his own life. And what is amazing is that, Saul, or that, that Silas and Paul respond and say, wait, stop. We're all here. The influence that, that Paul and Silas had on the other prisoners made, they didn't run, mean they didn't run. Nobody ran. And that's the amazing thing. The doors were open. Nobody ran. Nobody took off. They all stayed. And the jailer seeing this amazing thing and having heard the hymns showed just how purposeful this whole event was when he says those precious words, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas bring the words of the gospel into that man's life, to that man's home. 
And they rejoice in that prison over the salvation of sinners. The next day, the magistrates desire to release these Jewish prisoners, get them out of the city, and Paul and Silas then are able to say, wait a minute, we were Roman citizens. Now they had the right to to cause problems for these magistrates. But what we read of in Acts 16, verses 35 to 39, they simply wanted to remind these magistrates of what they had done. But they complied with the magistrates and they left the city. They then go on, as we know from the narrative, to plant churches in Thessalonica, Berea, to preach the gospel in the great city of Athens, and to spend 18 months in Corinth, all on Paul's second missionary journey. I'll I'll leave it at that. I'll send some more notes here to you by email. There's another scene, scene four, very quickly. Even though Paul leaves Silas in Corinth then in AD 52 and passes out of Luke's history, we find him come up with one final reference in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. In AD 64, when Peter writes from Rome, he makes reference to Silvanus and says, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. And the suggestion there is that, that Silas had acted as Peter's secretary. Well, this is the picture of Silas. Faithfulness, stability, servanthood. As one writer writes, Silas was a man who could be depended on. We cannot all be great men, but we can all be faithful men. It's my challenge to you this evening. Let's pray that the Lord would make us more like Silas, more faithful, more stable, more servant-like. Heavenly Father, as we wrap up our time tonight, we're grateful for the blessings you gave us. Thank you for the wonderful time of fellowship. Thank you for the blessings that come through interaction with other brothers, the encouragement and strengthening received from them. Thank you for your word and the instruction it gives to us. And thank you for these real heroes of the faith who demonstrate in very concrete ways what it means to live the Christian life, what it means to be a follower of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we look at this man, Silas, tonight, we pray that you would make us more like him, distinguished in our commitment to excellence in all the leadership responsibilities you've given us, gracious in our ministry of the word to others, not showing partiality, but always giving an encouraging and strengthening word, courageous in our witness for your son Jesus that we would be willing to suffer even great injustice for the sake of his name and faithful as servants as assistance to enable others to fulfill the responsibilities you've given them. Lord, make us these, this kind of man. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.